This is the View from the Couch podcast, and I'm your host, Pierce Wiesenar. On the program today, I will be recapping Dragonstone, the season 7 premiere of Game of Thrones. On a programming note, for the next 7 weeks, I will be recapping this season of the show, which will mean that I won't be able to review a few movies. I will still have an August preview, and I will try to review a movie or two if possible, but I can't make any promises. It's been a long wait for everybody. For book readers, some have waited over 20 years to learn how the series ends. And for show watchers, many have had to wait over a year for season 7 to hit the airwaves. And in the case of Dragonstone, the wait was clearly worth it. If you listen to my season 6 recaps, you know that I'm pretty hard on the show. I expect more because in the past, Game of Thrones was atop everyone's year-end lists. The show has the capacity for award-winning television, and in seasons 5 and 6, we saw little of that. While Battle of the Bastards and The Winds of Winter are among the best episodes of television in this age of peak TV, a large part of the past season was just nonsense. Characters were all over the place, stories were messy, and episodes were quite clunky. For all of the nice set design and costumes, it was all window dressing, because on a week-to-week basis, the show was unable to wrestle the titanic-sized story of the books into an hour-long television show. But now, we are in Season 7, and things are a little different now, because for the very first time, the end is in sight. Everything we see, hear, and learn is beyond the books. In a seven-part series, there are only five books available to read. I won't go into a long-winded rant about George R.R. Martin and the final two books, but the story that he started is now being told without him. Dan and Dave, the two showrunners, have the notes, drafts, and all the required knowledge of how the series ends. The books and the show will arrive at the same ending, but get there by taking different paths. In the eyes of many, these final two seasons will be considered canon. With that in mind, let's break down the episode. Before we get the infamous title sequence or the rare pre-title scene, this time with Arya, we get another hallmark of television shows nowadays, the previously on Game of Thrones segment. This has to be the longest look back in TV history. We're not just watching a highlights reel of season 6, no, we're going all the way back to season 1. That season aired in 2011. We're now in 2017. The show is calling back stuff from way back then. I can't think of another show, at least one that I watch, that has ever done something like that before. We are so late in the game here, and we're digging up scenes from seasons 1 and 2. It all makes me think of how this story, as great as it is, is a double-edged sword. Fans love it because it's a best-selling book series and it's one of the few pieces of pop culture that can turn heads that isn't Marvel or Star Wars. However, the plot and story are so thick and heavy that it's often hard to make a show that isn't just people sitting in rooms and talking for 10 hours each season. And yet, here we are, seven years later atop the pop culture landscape with a legacy of Game of Thrones secured and end in sight. For all of the fun nostalgic moments that segment shows, it reveals the endless strands that bind together this complex story. So when you take a step back, as we do in that scene, you see the weight of the plot that the writing staff have had to carry all these years. Hopefully, that job will be easier in the final two seasons. Very rarely does the show start before flying around the map of Planetos. 
which means that whatever we're about to see is of the highest importance. The first time the show did this, if I remember correctly, was Tywin Lannister melting down ice to create Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper. Here we have a callback to the Red Wedding, a certain pie, and the end of House Frey. The reveal that Walder Frey was actually Arya wasn't impactful because minutes before, we see Arya kill him in the previously on Game of Thrones segment. But that's beside the point, because Arya has got mad skills. We spent two years in Bravos with the Faceless Men. At any point, did you walk away from that thinking that Arya had the skills to pull something like this off? The farthest she got in her training was cleaning the bodies. She never learned how to make a mask, let alone wear it and act like the face that she's wearing. In those Bravo scenes, Arya is the avatar for the audience. We are like her, learning as she goes along in her training. She didn't do much in her training because we didn't see her do much. You can't just give someone the ability to do something like this because it feels like the show is pulling the rug out from under you. She's not just making a mask, she's learning how to speak and act like someone she briefly met before killing, and she's having to pull off a great impression here because she calls a feast of every male descendant of Walder Frey. You don't think, even in their drunkenness, that someone would think something's off with their dad. While it's a fun badass moment, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Season 7 is not starting off on a great note. Later, Arya meets up with Ed Sheeran, great celebrity cameo by the way, and a few Lannister soldiers in the Riverlands. After meeting Arya the Killer, we transition to Arya trying and kind of failing to be human. She's great at wearing other people's faces, but she struggles to wear her own. It was a hard cut because we see Arya smiling as she walks over dead bodies, to Arya sitting around a fire, eating food, drinking wine, and hanging out with some common folk. Since season 2, she's been on a quest to kill everyone on her list, and she's killed almost everyone that she's come across whether or not they're on her list. So for her to sit, be still, and even just for a moment, hang out with people not on her kill list is quite interesting. It shows her for the first time that not all Lannisters or people affiliated with them are bad. They are like her, people that just want to go home and be with their families as winter comes. However, Arya doesn't have much of a family return to. She thinks that everyone is dead and that Jon is still at the wall. Winterfell isn't home anymore because no one's there. So with no home and no family to return to, she doubles down on her quest. If the show can give Arya the ability to pull off the end of House Frey, then Cersei doesn't stand much of a chance. King's Landing is a long ways off, which makes me wonder how much Arya will be in this season. Will she get a jetpack and arrive in the capital next week, or will the show keep her on the back burner for a later episode? For a show with the end in sight, Game of Thrones takes a moment to look backwards and show how much a few characters have changed over the seasons. In the case of the Hound, Sandor Clegane is a reformed man. We saw the start of that during The Broken Man in Season 6, and in this episode we continue to see that growth. By returning to the house that he spent some time in with Arya, the show is putting a spotlight on how different Sandor now is. Before he was trying to sell Arya, now he's trying to save the realm. Before he was someone that didn't believe in religion, now he's reading the flames better than Melisandre ever could. And what does he see? What Bran does. And it's not a pretty picture. The opening shot of the episode, after the title sequence, is of a very cold place. Arya said that winter has come for House Frey, and in this shot, we see that winter has come for us all, because the Night's King is marching south with his army. 
This is all seen by Bran as Mira has dragged him back to the wall. Just like Arya, Bran has superpowers. We spent a handful of minutes with the Three-Eyed Raven, and now Bran has full control over his green sight. I'm sorry, but you just can't skip through all the important bits, like they did last year, and get away with it. The show only cares about having certain elements in place for the grand finale, and fails to show how these various pieces were all moved. Ed, now Lord Commander, opens the gate to meet them and bring them south. Hopefully Bran will return to Winterfell and meet with King Jon and Sansa. When Bran returns home, things can get a little bit murky when it comes to who is the rightful King of the North. While Jon wears the crown, he's still a snow. Bran has the best claim to Winterfell and is the closest heir to Robb Stark. With Littlefinger trying to divide Sansa and Jon, I wonder how Bran's arrival will shake things up for him. I'll be honest, Sam, Baby Sam, and Gilly have never been a favorite storyline of mine. However, the opening scene with Sam doing the repetitive menial jobs of the Citadel will go down as one of my favorite scenes of the entire series. The timing was on point, and it lasted just long enough where you could get every laugh you could out of it. The monologue of the Archmaester told of the importance of the Maesters, the Citadel, and their history. But most importantly, he told Sam that he believes him when it comes to the White Walkers, Whites, and the Long Night. For someone away from home in Horn Hill and Castle Black that is on a mission to save humanity from a threat that is unlike any other, it's a small ray of sunshine in the life of Sam. The biggest surprise of the episode was the appearance of Jorah. The show made a big deal of Danny leaving him behind outside Vey's Dothrak, and Jorah is one of the few members of the cast that is still around from season 1, so it would have been shocking if he didn't come back in some form or fashion. But how did Jorah go from Essos to Westeros? The King in the North is on the hunt for Dragonglass. Trying to find some in the North should be a little difficult because Dragonglass is very hard to come by. Also, Dragonglass comes from volcanoes, and last time I checked, there aren't any volcanoes in the North. Previously on Family Feud, John and Sansa publicly bicker about who gets Carhold and Last Hearth. That was a strange scene, because John is king. This isn't a vote. While Sansa has a say as his closest advisor, it looks really bad for his little sister to challenge him, especially in an open setting, with his bannermen from the North and the Vale in attendance. Later on, Sansa tells John that he is good at ruling, which is odd because minutes before, she challenged his authority. Also, John better be good at ruling because he had training as the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, so he's not coming into this inexperienced. Hopefully this time around, he won't end up with a mutiny on his hands. Another weird line was when John said that it sounded like Sansa admired Cersei. Does the show take us for fools? When you spend three seasons detailing how Cersei made Sansa's life hell, Sansa doesn't admire her sister-in-law. Remember folks, Sansa is still married to Tyrion. Sansa is scared of Cersei. She knows full well what she's capable of and the lengths she will go to achieve her goals. Don't try to make it look like Sansa is a young Cersei and will try to usurp Jon to claim the Northern Throne. She quickly shut down Littlefinger and it looks like the student has become the teacher in that relationship. Speaking of Cersei, our new Queen of the Realm has done a little redecorating. Like Aegon's table on Dragonstone, Cersei goes above and beyond. She has a giant floor map where she can stand tall and look down over all of Westeros. But as Jaime recounts, she has three kingdoms at best under her command, and not the full set of seven. 
with enemies to the south and west as Dorne and the Reach unite against the crown, and Danny landing on Dragonstone to the east, plus with news of John named King in the north, the Queen in King's Landing is in a very uncomfortable position. Without any allies now that the Freys are all dead, and no money to bribe anyone to their side, the Lannisters look like a losing bet. And yet Cersei is relentless in her pursuit of more power and more heads to put on spikes. We have seen what a lion does when put in a corner. They blow up a sept, for example. But this time, it's a little different. While Cersei sits atop the Iron Throne, she's alone. With each passing line, you can see Jaime move farther and farther away from her. After spending three seasons spinning his wheels, is this the start of when Jaime sees what the audience sees in Cersei? When she bats away any talk of Tommen, not to mention the deaths of Marcella and Joffrey, we get a glimpse of her state of mind. She's only looking towards the battle ahead, and not the deaths of her children in the past. With no one else to call for aid, no money for sellswords, and the entire realm in open rebellion, who do you call? We get a glorious shot of the Iron Fleet in all of their majesty. This is Game of Thrones pulling out all the stops, throwing a lot of money at this CGI money shot. And boy, does the Kraken look good in gold. The Ironborn aren't a favorite for book readers, and the show doesn't rate them highly also. However, Euron Greyjoy isn't most Ironborn. In the books, he's way more badass. When he was introduced in Season 6, everyone was underwhelmed. It's safe to say that he was one of, if not the worst character of last season. He lacked everything that made Euron, well, Euron. His proposal to Cersei is a good one, because she's out of options, and most importantly, she has no ships. With Danny on the island of Dragonstone, Euron is the perfect ally. The only wrinkle is that Euron is a king and Cersei is a queen. Someone is going to have to bend the knee, but that is a conversation that will be had at a later date. For all the book readers like myself, the moment when Danny arrived on Dragonstone was a moment we would have liked to enjoy it on the page. This season will feature a few like this, and it's something that all of us book readers will have to come to terms with. So much of Danny's identity is wrapped up in her family's history, tradition, and legacy. When your ancestors conquer a continent and rule it for 300 years, the weight of expectation can bury you. But Danny is unlike anyone else in her family. She was born in the aftermath of Robert's Rebellion, raised in Essos, married a call, birthed the first dragons in over a century, broke chains, and ruled a slaver's bed. All of this makes her arrival home all the more important. After hearing tales of glories gone by from others, she's taking her first steps into her birthright and following in the legendary footsteps of her ancestors. It was nice of Game of Thrones to save the best scene for last and to tell this critical story without words. It made the entire scene more powerful and leaves quite the impression on the audience. To end the scene and episode with Danny saying, shall we begin? You know it's about to get wild. It's a shame we have to wait a week to find out what happens next, but it's a terrific way to end the episode. The trailer for next week's episode titled Stormborn appears to be centered on Danny. Stormborn is one of Danny's names since, you guessed it, she was born during a storm. Word has reached John that Danny has Dragonglass on Dragonstone, and it sounds like a few lords are not interested in getting involved with Targaryens once again. Cersei has Danny in her sights as well, but with deadly intentions, and Yara wants to sack King's Landing. Then it's a quick succession of cuts, showing Arya in snow, a wolf that may or may not be Nymeria, 
Arya's direwolf from season 1, soldiers ride out from what appears to be Winterfell, Yara is kissing someone, a shot of Sansa before we see Littlefinger pressed up against a wall. So it appears that another tense episode is on the card. If I had to give this episode a grade, I would give Dragonstone a B+. If you like the show and want some more episodes, just subscribe for more, and don't forget to rate the show and to share the episode. This has been another episode of the View from the Couch podcast. Thanks for listening.